You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Absolutely massive news, everybody. The Quickly Kevin fan club is now available on Apple Podcasts. All you need to do is go to the show page, hit subscribe, and you'll get access to years of bonus content it's highly likely you've never heard before. All the Steve Bruce books, two specials every month, interviews with Sam Allardyce, Yapstam, Phil Daniels, and loads more. To access the Quickly Kevin fan club, all you need to do is go to the Quickly Kevin show page on Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe. It couldn't be easier. So make sure you sign up to the Quickly Kevin fan club and Robbie Slater. See you later. Shouldn't you be at work? Good luck. Oh, and Lovey's got a real chance now. Peter and Love. John Walk will take the penalty. Up goes Dion Dublin. Unknown goal from Ruddock. Ball might break here for Kiwabia. Pannister and Bruce in the queue again. Bruce scores. Goal left. Hit left. Hit left over the top. It's now. Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, oh he No! Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin. Will he score? We're back. I'm Chris Skoll. Joining me, as always, Michael Marden. Hello. And this is from Richard Rush. Namaste, David May. We've got two guest hosts for you today. Tom Parry... Ben Clarky Clark. Welcome, gents. Hello, hello. Ahoy, hoy. How you doing? Great to be back. We've done a watch-along of a documentary, and I just panicked just before we started this episode by saying I don't actually know what the title was, and I don't know the title because I was searching for Keith Allen Italian 90 documentary. And, of course, Keith Allen is not presenting this. It's his younger brother, Kevin. <laughs> and quite amazing how much... I mean, like, you were a good say like an hour into this before you realised that Keith Allen wasn't in this documentary? <laughs> the credits were rolling, Parry. <laughs> so two things were going on. Either you were thinking Keith Allen looked good back in the day <laughs> or you were waiting for Keith Allen to arrive like <laughs> some Samuel Beckett effort. <laughs> it's like they're keeping him back. God, he's going to make a big arrival for the Germany game. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> I've got a well-prepared defence on this, which is that the pixelation was quite poor. So every now and again, I would squint and go, that is Keith Allen, isn't it? 
<laughs> I guess he looked different when he was younger. Those years down the Groucho Club would have aged him. One of the big questions, it's impossible to watch this documentary without questioning how different it would be if it was Keith who was hosting proceedings <laughs> yeah. rather than Kevin. I think that first Italian border crossing stop that they have about 60 <laughs> seconds in that's the end of the documentary yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we seem to have found some stuff in your car Keith sorry <laughs> well look we're going to get into it into a minute Kevin Allen goes to Italia 90 in a documentary we'll talk about that but first shall we have some post bag I'm Jim Rosenthal and this is the electronic post bag you've got mail so Clark and Perry, we've been having emails in on the subject of 90s English footballers who are a sensation on foreign shores, okay? And Simon Harrow sent this one in. He says, a mate of mine went to Gran Canaria and tells me that Vinnie Samways is regarded as an absolute legend at Las Palmas. He joined them in 96 just after they were promoted to the second division. After four seasons, they were promoted to the first division where they stayed for his final two years at the club. And on the same subject, Jordan Quinn has emailed in to say... He went on a family holiday in the early 2000s to Gran Canaria. <laughs> While he was there, his dad worked out the local football team was Las Palmas. They went to see a game, and after the game, walking back to the hotel, in their Wolves tops, Las Palmas fans drove past them going absolutely mental, shouting, See, si, Vinny Samways, Vinny Samways! <laughs> Clearly a massive cult here in the Canaries, but surely not as fondly remembered at the Molyneux after a brief loan spell. Harry, is Vinnie Samway's a legend in Wolverhampton? No, sadly, it just doesn't occur. (laughs) (laughs) That never comes up. But amazing their knowledge of Vinnie Samway's career to know that he was at the Molyneux for a brief period. (laughs) Absolutely amazing. The closest I've had to that is when I was in Italy, I went to hire a car. In fact, I was going to Josh's wedding and I went into the hire car place and the guy behind the counter started singing Molyneux's Patrick Catroni song to me. And he was this Italian striker that we had for about eight months who scored about twice and then we flogged him <laughs> on. He was awful. But he was just so excited to see a wall shirt, started singing Patrick Catroni song to me and it was a wonderful moment. <laughs> Did you join in or just what? Yeah, he loves the pizza, he loves the pasta, the man's fucking magic. <laughs> Around about 2005, I did a tour of the Camp Nou and my mate went to the Barcelona club shop and got a Barcelona shirt and was like, can I have Lineker printed on the back of the shirt? And as he walked out of the shop, like I would say an 80-year-old Barcelona fan walked past and went, Lineker, Lineker, good player, good player. Did he think it was Lineker? (laughs) (laughs) Is that how literally that guy takes his names on shirts? Time hasn't been kind. <laughs> All those little kids in Lionel Messi shirts really freaking him out. I mean, I know he's small, but I mean, this is small. <laughs> that Patrick Catroni song, he loves the pizza, he loves the pasta. That was the song. And my favourite thing about that was he did an interview with the Matchday programme and they asked him a question and his answer was, I have to confirm, I do love the pizza, but I only like the pasta. <laughs> <laughs> Had to correct the record. I love that when 90s footballers get asked about their songs. Ludic McCloskey had a very specific song for us. I don't even know what the tune is, but it goes on for quite a while. And I bumped into him and I was like, do you remember your song? And he was like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, do you remember how it goes? Yeah. I should say as well, this was on stage when West Ham, I hate to keep going on about it, but West Ham won a European trophy. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Is there a sweepstake for each episode about how, <laughs> how far in you can get? <laughs> I asked Ludic whether he would go on stage and like just give a little bit of his song, like kick it off for the fans. And he was like, <laughs> no. 
<laughs> Fair enough. Fair <laughs> Got another email here. This one's from Rakesh Pradhan. So what we're doing is we're just dropping in Alexi for Lalas facts every now and again. And if someone sends in a good one, it'll get read out. But people have been testing us by sending in things that are clearly not true. But let's see if Rakesh is honest about this one. After the World Cup in 94, Coventry and Padova were lining up to sign the musical footballer Alexi Lalas. But Padova clinched the deal, not because of money or the Italian lifestyle over Coventry, but because they allowed him, as part of the signing, to play a gig at their ground. Just imagine if Coventry had offered the same. He could have lined up with Dion Dublin on his tube. (laughs) There we go. Did you know Alexi Lalas is a musical footballer? No. I think I did, yeah. He was that guy, wasn't he? Did he also do a bit of acting? Oh, did he? You got your own Alexi Lalas facts? Well, no, that's what I was trying to reach for now, because I think he cameoed in a TV show. I do definitely remember that he was musical. It was part of like the exotic nature of American footballers, was that <laughs> you kind of anticipated that they'd also have other strings to their bow. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, they can do soccer, but I mean, like, he can also, he rock climbs in the Olympics, or whatever it is. It's like, he was that kind of guy. Yeah, you're right about the exotic nature of that American team. The rumour that we've always heard that John Harkes was a, did great impressions. And that someone told us, Mike, I can't remember who told us, but John Harkes did a great Jim Carrey. Yeah, and then right. I saw it on Twitter recently, and it's rubbish. Somebody stop him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, got another email here. This one's from Sean Lewis. And it's on the subject of managers getting sacked in strange circumstances. We were talking recently about, I think it was in our Reese James episode, about Martin Yole getting sacked at half time. Another 90s figure, Gus Poyet, found out he was sacked as Brighton manager while on the BBC as a pundit in the studio of the Confederations Cup in a game between Spain and Nigeria in 2013. He was doing punditry when he found out he'd been sacked in the first half. Being a lifelong Wolves fan, Parry, have you got any interesting stories of managers getting sacked in strange circumstances? No, I mean, there were, it's a personal story which isn't very good, which is, because I love Dean Saunders, obviously, as a player. Never played for us, but he was just a great footballer. And like my dad's a Villa fan. I was there for his first Villa game when he played for Villa. And he was our manager for, we got relegated under Dean Saunders. But before we got relegated, I thought, oh, I'm going to get a Saunders shirt. So I went in, got my Wolves shirt, and I went up to the till and was like, can I have Saunders on the back? The woman at the counter went over to the person pressing the shirts and he turned around and shook his head and whispered in her ear. And she came back and he went, we sacked him five minutes ago. <laughs> 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 so, it hadn't gone out yet, but it had gone around the staff. So I found out through the club shop that they'd just sacked Saunders. <laughs> Did you still get the shirt done? Well, I should have, shouldn't I, for posterity, but I didn't. <laughs> so you didn't get it? Didn't get it, though. Do you know who our new manager is? I'll pop <laughs> Do you know who, who's rumoured? <laughs> I've got a bit of a story, actually. Recently, I've been working with West Ham. And I've been helping them launch the new you guys signings. Have some success in Europe lately, is that right? And we had some success in Europe. I don't know if you heard yeah, about right, it, yeah, Champions yeah. of Europe. <laughs> it's fascinating, right, to be inside of the club around signings. Because I get to find out first when we're signing someone. I get to meet them before it's all announced and like do all the media stuff before the club puts it on the social media. And a big part of that is getting the shirt printed, which I find so excited because someone's got to write it down and go into the shop. They've got like a secret shirt printer out the back, like in a locked room, which I presume is for this kind of purpose. It's such a high security thing. And amongst all these, the drama of a new signing, that is the thing I'm most fascinated by, going getting the shirt done. Yeah. Like, and how does that stay secret? One person prints a letter at a time. 
<laughs> no one knows. It's a team of like 11 people and everyone does one letter and they mix up the order a little bit so no one can know. How long is this name? <laughs> there was one player we signed. We signed him on a Friday. He was doing his media in the London Stadium, but it was in the middle of a uh, stadium tour. So you've got this multi-million pound sign-in, like loads of money involved in this. And he's hiding from like a group of school children going around looking at the dresser. <laughs> like it's a Tesco, like to hide this guy so he can come out. It's been fascinating. If any listeners have any stories about new signings or indeed finding out about Magic Getting Sacked because you get the name printed, please get in touch. Hello at quitkevin.com. Are you involved in the signing videos that they do now on social media? Do you have any creative swing in those? No, not really. But I see them getting shot. Because, I mean, the way they're going, like we signed Diego Costa last season and his video was him holding a pack of wolves on chains. <laughs> they have these wolves. Instead of on leads, they're on chains. And, like, he emerges out of the shadows and all these wolves are kind of, like, pulling at the lead. And they chatted to him afterwards and he said, oh, I was absolutely terrified. <laughs> It was, like, it was like a pack of wolves. And it's like, you just think, this poor guy, because he's got a reputation of being a hard man. It's like, yeah, we'll give him a pack of fucking wolves on his first day on chains. It was awful. It was like, here you go, lad, let it get in there. Yeah, no, don't worry. If I've seen that, I would never imagine they were real wolves. Yeah, yeah you think they've painted some Alsatians? Yeah, exactly. Or CGI. It doesn't need to be real wolves, does it? Surely not. But Wolverhampton, we've got them all over the shop. Obviously, they wander the streets in packs, yeah. <laughs> Do you ever get wolves out onto the pitch? Like, the Crystal Palace always let an eagle out onto the crossbar. <laughs> Release the wolves. <laughs> so the That's why Molland is such a tough place to go. That would be a half-time competition that I'd love to see. Okay, we've got a Derby County fan here. Let's see how long he can last. Release the wolves! <laughs> he gets a ram. <laughs> Have they never done that? I'd be amazed. Not once. I've never seen them take a wolf out on the pitch, but it does feel like opportunity missed. <laughs> also, in the days of health and safety, I think it was only possible up until about 1988. After that, no one's signing off on that. It'd be a hell of a reveal if the wolfie mascot, they unzipped him and there was a genuine wolf in <laughs> wolf in wolf's clothing. There was a wolf in wolf's clothing, very much so. No wonder he kicked the shit out of the Bristol City pigs. <laughs> he was starving. He blew their house and then stoved their heads in. <laughs> I want to know about that. Any animals been brought onto the pitch at your club? Hello at quicklykevin.com. Do you want one final one? Yes, please. Yes. I don't know if you've got 75 grand knocking down the back of the sofa, but if you have, boy, might you want to invest in this. On eBay right now, I'll just send you the link. For 75,000 of your English pounds, you could own the silver EFL Division One trophy from the playoffs for 94, 95, 96, the trophy that was awarded to the winning teams could be yours for £75,000 on eBay. Thank you to Joseph Criddy for sending that in. It's a lot of money, that, isn't it? I don't think it's that. You say that, but I mean, that's the trophy that would have changed our lives. That's the one. If I could, I'd buy it and give it to Bully. Yeah. I don't know if he'd want that. I mean, it's like his one. <laughs> <laughs> like Here of- Here's a reminder of your greatest failure. <laughs> Yeah, I feel a lot of bad memories towards that trophy. 75 grand. 75 grand. Surely one of the clubs has got to stump up for it, right? 
Yeah, well, so the winners said Leicester Bolton. Who's selling it? It's got to be an ex-player, hasn't it, or something? Interestingly, that price is buy it now. There is the option to make an offer. Okay. Now we're we talking. Shall we lowball them? It's going to have to be quite lowballed. Will you take 500 quid for this? I tell you what, you can almost make him out in the reflection on it. Oh, yeah. And the reflection of the trophy, the person is wearing red trousers. If they're wearing red trousers, they're holding out for that 75 grand. <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah, incredible. If you find any other bargains on eBay, do let us know. Hello at quicklykevin.com. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. All right, before we get into the main body of this episode, don't forget you can get even more Quickly Kevin, two bonus episodes every month, plus ad-free episodes of every episode this series, and you get them a week early to join the Quickly Kevin fan club. And bear in mind, another benefit of subscription is you get early access to pre-sale tickets for any live shows, not on a wink. To sign up, go to anotherslice.com forward slash Kevin. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So this week, we're talking about Kevin Allen's trip to Italian 90, brackets, it's not Keith. And he made a brilliant <laughs> documentary called Bobby's Army. What's it called? On the March with Bobby's Army, I think. You'll find it on YouTube just as Kevin Allen's Italian 90 video diary. Michael, should we have a little clip to begin? Now, I'm no journalist, and I wanted to see this vast TV spectacular from the supporters' point of view. But with a camera on my shoulder, I wondered whether I'd be accepted as just an average England fan. We'd already been exiled to relative isolation in Sardinia, but for those like me intent on witnessing the greatest sporting event in the world firsthand, a massive security operation had been promised. I'd expected problems getting into some of the games, but I hadn't expected problems getting into the country. Right, we're in Italy. The Italian customs didn't take um, to us having English number plates, I think. And the person who's actually holding the camera at the moment had a very funny New Year Jack hat on, and I think they thought we might be English hooligans, for which they're obviously prepared because they had a massive list of... Um, hooligan names that they were checking off and we didn't come up on it so after negotiating and being thoroughly searched we had the car completely searched we were strip searched uh, they finally let us go i showed them um, the letter i have from the bbc to tell them that we're making um, this program 
and that um, all the help possible would come in handy and, and basically the guy didn't uh, really care much for that. But it doesn't matter, we're about half an hour, half an hour from uh, Genoa and stay the night there, say hello to some Scottish football fans before getting the ferry to Sardinia on Saturday afternoon. And we're going to see England, Ireland, Egypt and Holland play in Group F of the 1990 World Cup! Yeah! All right, so we've all watched this documentary. Should we begin with high-level thoughts? Did we enjoy this? <laughs> I mean, it's a pure slice of nostalgia. It's like yeah. the bit in Pulp Fiction when Uma Thurma gets it in the sternum. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's right there. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. The thing about finding it on YouTube without a proper title, and it's just there as Kevin Allen's Italian 90s video diary, is it does feel like you've just found someone's home videos. That's how low the production values are on this. It is rough and ready. It's quite charming in that respect. When you think about Italia 90, you think about the polished highlights and you see in the stadiums and it, the colour looks amazing, the stadiums, the football, like the aesthetic of it all looks brilliant. But what you don't see is the actual fan experience. And I don't think I've ever seen that before. And boy, is it gritty and rough. And you kind of forget in 1990, this is still in the midst of the Heisel ban so English teams can't compete in Europe. So this is the only chance English fans really get to kind of go abroad and watch their own teams play football. And the extent to which they're kind of feared and also it's just a horrendous experience as a football fan. And almost every fan that gets spoken to says that the government's kind of hung us out to dry here, that we're not getting defended. The police are just kettling them and every opportunity the police are on them. It starts jolly and then it becomes increasingly political. It's like when it starts, new orders on the radio and it's like this yeah. guy driving his shit car going, we're off to the World Cup. The World and Cup it's like, is it, so excited. It fucking go. And then like about halfway through it, he becomes like a war correspondent. <laughs> it's like <laughs> intense, man. And then by the end, it's like insanely emotional and like you're waving goodbye to like the people he's come to know as like Wigan and Jersey. And you're like, oh my God, he's never going to see them again. And it's like there's a tear in your eye and Ness and Dorma's playing the roller coaster. Because at the start, it feels quite crap. And the anticipation is like right on the floor as well. Everyone's like, oh, we're rubbish. And then it, you just get swept along with it. And gradually it's like, hold on, actually, we're looking all right here. And more and more. And then suddenly it's like, oh, we might actually do this. And then, yeah crushingly heartbreaking once again at the end <laughs> so it really follows the shape of the tournament one of the big headlines of this is it's incredible to see just how shit life was for the away fan before the internet yeah it just goes this is what pre-internet life was like because you get to italy and you like go i've had to ask some guys for a campsite and i've driven to that campsite and it isn't a campsite and now i haven't slept for two days and it's like you go oh yeah this is what it was like <laughs> life yeah. without the internet and there's so much boredom as well you know they all talk about just like now they're just so bored like they've got nothing <laughs> to do they're just kind of wandering yeah. around and it's like well of course then they all just get together sing songs and, and wind each other up <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're so right about that. There's a bit in it that 
The whole ticket purchasing thing for the World Cup in 1990 absolutely blows my mind. Like Kevin Allen gets there. He had to sign up for the FA. He's like the England fan membership group to get tickets. So that's how he initially gets tickets. And then he gets there and he realises, oh, you could just buy tickets off touts for way less than I've paid. And he's absolutely blown away by that. The idea of touts hadn't crossed his mind before, which was mad. But then also for the semi-final, they release like 1,500 tickets and you've just got to go to a random place and queue. To a window. To a window in a random place. Like that's the process. There was something about vouchers as well. Certain people get vouchers. But one dude's got a voucher and he's like, well, I just turned up today and I've got a voucher. Yeah, and he's like way posher than everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I just thought I'd come down and see what all the fuss was about. And I got myself a ticket. There's <laughs> all these poor lads from wigging around him being like, fucking hell, I've been here for weeks. Yeah. The thing I was trying to factor in was how much 55 quid was in 1990. Are you looking at what? Do you reckon 250 quid? I reckon so. I actually found an online inflation calculator. Great, thank no, you. Oh, did you? Yeah, I swear to God. This is why you booked Sharky. So 55 quid for them and 10 pounds to join the membership. That comes to 5 million pounds. Wow. <laughs> no, it's 189 pounds and two pence. Well, about two pence is a kick in the teeth, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. Come on, is guys. Is that about what I'm right now? You'd probably pay even more than that now, wouldn't you? There's this one bit very early doors where he goes, they're not serving beer, but you can buy a Coke for the princely sum of £1.75. And I was like, that's pretty reasonable. It's like, obviously, <laughs> you know, again, you've got to try and factor it in. But again, Tom, I adjusted that for inflation. That is £5 and nine pence. But again, it's like, yeah, that's about yeah, it. That's about right. And also, the shittest seats they gave the oh English. My God. Like, every view that he has in the games are awful. Can barely see the game. Yeah, totally. And one thing he says as well is like, there's such a high demand for tickets among England fans. But once you get in there, there are empty seats everywhere. And it's something I never really properly clocked. But throughout the documentary, every single game that England are at, even the semi final, when Lineker gets the equaliser, you can see behind him, there's just loads of empty seats. And every time he's in a ground with the camera pans, you're like, this ground's half empty almost every time. I think that is a common problem with the later stages in tournaments, especially if any of the big nations have gone out. I went out to Russia when England got to the semifinals, and because the nature of the draw and those big teams, especially when the South American teams go out, those people will just go home and they sell their tickets because they've got tickets for pretty much the whole run because they're expecting Brazil or Argentina to get all the way there. So the marketplace just gets flooded with tickets. And if you're an England fan, or especially if you're a team that wasn't expecting to get there, and maybe your fan base isn't particularly substantial, no one's buying those tickets. So if you're on the ground there, you sometimes have got thousands of people trying to shift tickets that don't get sold. So it's definitely a problem. And I think obviously here in Italia 19, the climate around everything that's going on, they did everything they could to basically make it inhospitable for England fans at like every level. I think that deliberately putting them on Sardinia, you look at the campsites and things, and it, it's brutal. Brutal. Yeah. The campsite owner is one of my sort of favourite little ensemble characters. A few Gino highlights. So Gino comes across, he's like an Italian Jack Duckworth figure. He's got the sellotape <laughs> on the glasses. Yeah. He's trying to help people with their ailments. Like, uh, oh, you know, you've got uh, swollen glands, gargle some water. I have this bad impression. <laughs> <laughs> but he's kind of trying to be something for everyone. They build him up to be quite an emotional figure in the documentary. And then all the England fans chip in to give him a bit of cash and buy him some 
presents and then they all jump the fence without paying him and it's like you have this really emotional bit where they also like fair play Gino lad you've been great and we got you this and love you three cheers for Gino and Gino gives a speech about brotherly love that's like straight out of an it's Oscar amazing film. that speech it's extraordinary and then you hard cut to Gino counting up his money and he's like now 70 of the lads have jumped the fence without <laughs> <laughs> at that point Gino drops the accent yeah. <laughs> the thing about Gino that also blew my mind, he says he's 45. That's the big oh, pullback yeah. and reveal. 60. <laughs> well, adjusted for inflation. <laughs> <laughs> he's got like his eight grandkids around him. What's going on in that campsite that has aged him like that? <laughs> it's the England fans. That's what happens. <laughs> yeah, they should have done it before and after of Gino. <laughs> we never saw him at the start. He was lithe, healthy boy. <laughs> yeah, so Gino owns this campsite that they're all on. But yeah, as you touched on there, Parry, he gives this speech that he's just like, I wrote down, this is what the World Cup's all about. It's such an emotional speech. He gets an award from everyone standing on the campsite. It's all about brotherly love if we look after each other. And I was like, oh, man, this is bringing a tear to my eye. Like you say, they end up jumping the fence. Thank you. Uh, I thank you all for having coming these two weeks and I hope when now you go to the mainland you feel uh, well as you have felt here in our camp because I know these past few days there have been something that didn't really go well but I wish you could forget the bad things and always remember the good ones and think that Sardinians, especially Sardinians, you know, are really nice people. No, forget the bad ones. There, are, there is good and bad in every, in every country, everywhere in the world. But if we are all friends and brothers and we love each other, I'm sure that we get on very well in life for a very, very long time. That's my message to each and every one of you. The source of trouble on the campsite is all the England fans have descended on this campsite. Everyone's quite polite, but it seems like every night they're just sat around getting more and more pissed. And it basically kicks off every night. <laughs> yeah. And Kevin Allen, the documentary maker, is like befriending everyone in the campsite and he's filming a few. But he says, like, on the first night, a couple of fans from South London come over and say, if you don't put your camera away, we're going to kick your head in. And this is the moment it all starts ramping up the southerners definitely come across as the problem right yeah the northern lads seem quite friendly in this (laughs) (laughs) he ends the first night by saying there's a really weird like underlying atmosphere to this whole thing and another one of his early reflections on the world cup is that when he talks to fans there's such a distrust about the media Obviously, they're expecting it to kick off, and lots of media have gone into these towns with cameras to try and watch it about to kind of kick off. It made me think, like, God, this distrust of the media is such an old thing. We think of it as quite a modern invention, but here we are at Italian 90, and all the fans are saying the same thing. Yeah, the kind of hatchet jobs the newspapers do on them and all the rest of it. It's like, oh, nothing's changed. But Kevin Allen fuels that, doesn't he? Like, whenever he interviews a journalist, no matter what point they're saying, he only ever credits them as... Another journalist. Yeah. <laughs> journalist is always an in inverted commas, isn't it? Yeah, and a little name strap. Yeah. So Kevin Allen's kind of positioned himself as this kind of guerrilla filmmaker. 
where it's kind of like I'm getting the real scoop and I'm in there. But he's quite a sweetly naive figure. It's also the story of a man who sets out with kind of like this grand ambition, but kind of lacks the chops to carry it through. Because talk about whether it would have been different if Keith Allen had been filming it. It's like as soon as things do kick off, he does what I think we'd all do. Like, I'm not criticising the guy, but, like, he hides. He runs away. <laughs> he goes and stays with a nice Italian family. It's like, this is not what guerrilla journalists should be doing. And like, there's a perfect moment at the end after the Germany game where he says, like, so there I am, I'm in Turin. It suddenly looks like I'm going to be in the middle of a riot, so I hide behind a tree. <laughs> <laughs> this is your chance to be Pulitzer Prize winning boots on the ground. And he's like, he fucks off to stay in a nice agriturismo farm for three days with a family. And actually, it's a two-hour documentary. It's a bit like Apocalypse Now, you know, when they do like the director's redux version and you get like an extra 40 minutes where they just have dinner on a farm. It's like, <laughs> this could very easily easily be an hour long this documentary but it's all in there so it's like even the bits where he goes off and stays with a friendly italian farmer he's like yeah i'll keep that in this is me having a nice time on holiday <laughs> what blows my mind with that bit as well is the kids are quite loud on the farm and he's like oh i thought i was gonna get a bit of respite but actually it's nearly as bad as the campsite it's like all right mate someone's letting you stay in there yeah. even very early on like he gets out a terrible tent and he's like oh my tent's shit well, I guess this is camping Italian 90 style. And it's like, it's not the World Cup's fault that you've bought a shit tent, mate. It's like yeah. the organisers of the Italian night, you can't be going, oh, and also we do have to make sure that Kevin Allen gets a nice three berth. <laughs> like, he's a man with no plan. And that's another part of the story. Because, I mean, like, you are right, I mean, like, Italian 90 was, the way they were treating the English supporters was abysmal. Obviously, it's right at that time where, the English supporters' reputations in the gutter. It's quite a tough watch, I think, because the only supporters that are prepared to appear on camera are the nice guys. So what you're doing is you're meeting a lot of really great working-class kids who've got themselves out there who let the older gentleman with the vouch through to the front. But off camera, there are these psychopaths, (laughs) and they never (laughs) appear on camera. All you see is, like, Kevin Allen get, like, a terrified look in his eye, and, like, he looks off screen, and it's like they're back it's like jurassic park (laughs) (laughs) and so we never get to actually see those guys so you do go oh god the italians are treating english sports terribly but then there are also a faction of psychopaths who have gone out there to fuck shit up yeah we don't actually get to meet those guys because they won't appear in front of a camera for anyone he describes them as five pissed blokes from wigan and at the end of one night he's kind of like under torchlight in his tent going, all the paramilitaries have turned up and these lads from Wigan are saying that they're going to take them on. Like, they're mad, like, taking on the paramilitaries. Like, you just fire piss blows from Wigan. But then the next day, he interviews a fan in the daylight, another fan, who says, yeah, they actually fought them off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The police backed off. It's like, Jesus. The police backed off. <laughs> How hard are these five piss fans from Wigan that have taken down the paramilitaries and kicked them out of the site? 
And because you never see them, they kind of obtain like mythical status. You kind of like my image of them is these fucking colossus of men, just like Northern Soul dancing towards them. <laughs> so one of the narratives, like through the documentary, is that the police have been warned, like English fans are the worst in the world, and. All the fans are based in Sardinia, which is where Gino's campsite is. But halfway through the tournament, when it gets to the knockouts, all the England fans and the England team actually have to leave Sardinia. And there's a lot of fear around, well, the police on the mainland going to be worse than the police on Sardinia. But there's this little window where all the fans leave Sardinia to go to the mainland. But Kevin Allen is like the last man left on Sardinia with the England team. So he asks the FA if it's possible to get a cheeky little interview with Bobby Robson as there's no one else around. But it actually happens. This is astonishing to me. It's so amazing. Can I interview Bobby Robson? They're like, yeah, just turn up at one. And there is Bobby Robson like, having an espresso in the hotel. And he just goes, come on then, what do you want to chat about? And Kevin Allen, by his own admission, shits himself. <laughs> he delivers the worst interview in sport, I think. <laughs> this documentary can be summed up in a nutshell, which is, he asks Bobby Robson a question, and then Bobby Robson answers, and all the while that Bobby Robson's talking, we get Kevin Allen's voiceover over the top of it going, well, Bobby was answering my question, but I didn't know what I was going to ask next. I didn't even know where I was going to go next or what I was going to do. I'm holding the camera right now, and it's like, let Bobby Robson talk, mate. He's the England manager. It's like absolutely baffling. Gets a full-on interview with him, and, yeah, you don't hear a fucking word of Bobby Robson. It's just him over the top. I managed to get a chat with Bobby Robson and told him the nature of um, what I'm doing here, that it's a football fan's um, diary of the World Cup, which he um, didn't seem to believe, but eventually agreed to meet me here at 10 to 1 outside the hotel. The team just uh, arrived here from training. After waiting for an hour, I was told, as long as I stuck to the subject of football, that I might have five minutes in the company of the England Supremo. Although a certain amount of blag had got me this far, I was taken by surprise. I was unprepared. I'd forgotten my tripod, and so with the camera perched on right shoulder, I sat opposite Robson and froze in the midday heat, groping for a question, any question. How are things going? Get out of that one, Bobby. Well, you're playing fine. Um, <clears throat> you can see the facilities we've got here, so we've been here yeah. for three weeks and they've been very pleasant. And um, absolutely ideal. We've got on with the matches. We've just got through the first phase. All the matches were fairly different, all right. difficult. Was um, the, the Egypt game was a completely different game? Was it? Did you see the spoilers? No. Very negative. No, not quite. No. No. Uh, the, the, the one physical... I didn't really have the experience to contain all I wanted to put to him in the last three and a half minutes. I wanted an in-depth discussion of the Robson news. I wanted to argue about tactics and team selection. But I genuinely felt sorry for this bloke and what his professional and personal life had suffered at the hands of the so-called voice of British sport, the gutter press. I settled for small talk. He had to wait an hour. So he had an hour at the very least to think about it. And he's like forgotten his tripod. So he <laughs> He's got the camera on his shoulder. He's like, mate, what have you done? And his first question is, um, so um, how are you? 
my mum could have given the better interview than this. He spends the first half of the documentary absolutely battering Bobby Robson, as many fans did. And he basically sees this as an opportunity to hold him to account for all the bad decisions he's made. But as we say, he completely bottles it when Bobby Robson is actually there. And then his answers to the questions don't even make the documentary. But there's one thing I was absolutely intrigued about is Mola's golf resort in Sardinia. You can go there now. That's where England stayed at Italia 90. Oh, it absolutely occurred to me. I had the exact same thought because as soon as he said the Ismailis Golf Resort, like I saw it in my head. I was like, I know it. I know all about that golf resort. It's like a mythical status because that's where they stayed. And it's where all the pictures of them gooning around by the pool and all that kind of stuff. Suddenly occurred to me, I bet you could go there quite reasonably now. 129 euros per night. (sighs) Wallop. Less than the price of a match ticket to Italian 90. Quickly, Kevin has been very kind to us in the past. We went to Wembley, we watched the England-Germany game. You've had us on several times. Is there a pitch to be had here of Quickly, <laughs> Kevin, go abroad and we go for a, a long weekend to the golf resort? Yeah. I would watch that YouTube documentary, guys. That's all I'm saying is... <laughs> You're coming, mate. Yes. Who could we get from the Italian 90 squad that'd be up for coming with us? Well, we've got to get Bobby Robson and do the interview he should have had. <laughs> should we tell him, guys? <laughs> oh, no. Say that ain't so. <laughs> Mate, not only is he dead, he's been dead for about 16 years. <laughs> I would love to go to this Mola's Golf Resort. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I Googled it. It does look quite similar. I mean, probably why it's 129 euros a night. They need to invest in there. Not a lot has changed in southern Italy. Like It is that kind of place where... There isn't, like, progress very quickly in those kind of parts of the world. Yeah. I think there's a really good case to go and visit. I bet you could ask to stay in the same rooms as well. Can I have Tony Dorigo's room, please? What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, the Tony Dorigo suite. Sure, sir. Come this Where way. The Terry Butcher suite, yeah. <laughs> Walk in the Terry Butcher suite. Terry Butcher theme, so blood up the wall. Punch bag dangling from the ceiling. <laughs> there is a real, I think, a generational divide between if you're old enough to have supported England through the 80s, then the shape of Italia 90 is different to, for us, if Italia 90 is your first ever experience of England in a major tournament, you're 10 or 11 or whenever it happened, then Bobby Robson is a great manager and was the saviour of English football who nearly won us the World Cup. But if you'd been an England football fan through the 80s, it was the end of a really difficult spell with him as manager where we'd been very uninspiring as a footballer. So the relationship to Bob Robson, I feel like I have such love for that man. He's a saint in my eyes. But It's really interesting hearing someone like Kevin who comes across as a reasonable bloke, but I immediately set myself against him because in the first 10 minutes, he starts slagging Bobby Robson. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, back off, mate. Back off, Bobby Robson. <laughs> and then I realised like, oh yeah, I'm of the generation where I just see Bobby as like a hero and a legend, whereas they'd had to endure quite a lot of failure under Bobby Robson. You're so right about that. Like when the documentary starts and he's slagging him off, it's so alien to me to hear people talk about Bobby Robson like that because I missed out on the dross. You only remember the good times. I knew people were critical of him, but I never heard the specifics. Kevin Allen's moaning about like the tactics and the negative football and it's too prosaic, which I mean is kind of borne out by those results in the group stage. It's pretty turgid. What's insane about what's going on in Italian 90 is midway through a tournament, In the second group game, he suddenly decides to experiment with the sweeper system. And you kind of go, oh, we are going to completely change our footballing style 
mid-World Cup for the first time, and it suddenly works. Everyone's like, okay, we're going to be that now, are we? And it's like 5-3-2 for the first time in England's history. It's like, that yeah. feels insane that that happened. And then the next game, he goes back to 4-4-2. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> Madness. So England leave Sardinia. They go to the mainland for the knockouts. Everyone's worried about the police. Kevin Allen is then on the ferry from Sardinia to the mainland. And he says he gets chatting to a policeman at a bar. And the most unbelievable insight that this policeman shares is that he's headed to Bologna. And then when he gets to Bologna, he's in for a good time because the policeman says... The girls there are famously good at blowjobs. I don't know how it works in Italy, but I'm not sure you could point at a single city village in the UK and go, oh, you're in for a treat when you head there, be it Banbury or whatever. There's nowhere that has a reputation that I've been aware of. Everyone seems to know that Bologna's... He actually said like a few other locals started chipping in, like, oh, yeah, Bologna's famous yeah. for its blowjobs. <laughs> it's such a pure playground rumour, isn't it? It's so brilliant. <laughs> In the days before the internet, this was the kind of rumour that filled the void. That's fantastic. In the first five minutes, I thought that, like, he makes a joke at one point being like, and then I wouldn't mind a bunk up. Yeah. But actually, like, that is the level that it stays at. And this kind of Bologna blowjob chat is the cheekiest it gets. And occasionally, like, even these lads who are all supposed to be like, oh, no, these psycho, worst of society kind of guys, they occasionally will go like, oh, I wouldn't mind a bunk up when I get home and a cup of tea. But it's actually quite an innocent you realize that actually the laddiness has shifted much further than it used to be because that level of talking about women and things is actually quite naive and light yeah. it never goes further than bunk ups and blowjobs <laughs> yeah <laughs> i tell you one of the things that this really highlights this documentary is that the low level of football chants in the 90s yeah like they are locked into let's yeah. all have a disco <laughs> we're on the march with bobby's army they've pretty much got two songs in their locker. And then obviously the breakout success of Italian 90 is Bully Bully, which features three times. And the first time I overheard somebody walk past the camera going, ooh, Bully Bully, I was like, yes, he's made it in. But actually, it runs like a thread. There's three renditions of Bully Bully. <laughs> oh, of course, you're counting every single one. <laughs> well, the first one's like an English passerby. The second one is the Italian He's passerby. written it, he's peering down at his notes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want a time code? <laughs> 41 minutes, 52 minutes, one hour, seven minutes in. It's a natural three act structure. <laughs> and the final bully bully, he's playing on the piano. It's perfect. <laughs> he gets the Jules Holland treatment. Yeah, he's played on the piano in the bar and he's drunk because he's drunk three pints of Malibu and blackcurrant. <laughs> Oh like, Kevin, what are you doing, man? That feels like it would curdle. Yeah. <laughs> There's another song that England fans sing that I just couldn't really believe. That it definitely wouldn't happen now. All the England fans at one point, I think it's against Belgium, they sing You'll Never Walk Alone. Did you catch that? Yeah. Was there a time when we're like England fans would all sing You'll Never Walk Alone? Yeah, I don't know. We've touched on this before, but it's just so bizarre to see. The Union Jacks everywhere. It's not England yeah. flags, the flag of St. George. I think... I'm right in saying this is the last World Cup we saw that because in France 98, I don't remember seeing Union Jacks. It was about 86, it was big, 90, it was big. But when England win the World Cup in 66, there's it, Union Jacks. But this is it. This is it for the Union Jack, I'd say. And actually, by the end of the tournament, they're trying to stop them taking Union Jacks into the stadiums if there's writing on them. Because some the Minister for Sport had seen someone waving a flag that's got the Union Jack with bollocks written on it. <laughs> 
<laughs> such a base level of humor, it's isn't so it? So funny. He takes the decision to ban flags. That's our own minister for sport, who comes across as the real villain of the piece, doesn't he? Yeah, Monaghan. The most kind of hated man in the camps and everything is the Minister for Sport who feels like everyone thinks he's really thrown them under the bus, which I think they did, to be honest, they really did. Quick word on Belgian's manager who smokes a cigar in the dugout throughout the game. You love to see it. A sweaty man (laughs) in a suit smoking a cigar on a bench. Perfect. (laughs) Absolutely perfect. And obviously, we have to just have a quick mention of the David Platt goal because oh, it is—it's yeah. a goal I will never ever tire of watching. I think it has to be in my top three, but I think it's probably my favourite goal of all time. It's just perfect. It's a perfect, perfect footballing moment. Yeah, it's the goal you dream of scoring. Do you know what I love about that goal? The fact that the nets are really shallow, and the angle that you see it from, that camera behind the goal is perfectly yeah. in line almost with the volley. And there's something so instant about that goal. The way he shoots it, the net's so shallow that it instantly hits the net. Yeah. Aesthetically, a great goal. It's perfect. Absolutely perfect. Yeah, it's magic. This is Gascoigne, did well. Bull is up front. Lineker is over on the right wing. Perrins challenges Gascoigne. Free kick given to England. Good position. A minute left. It's Gascoigne shaping to take it. And chipped in. And volleyed in! And it's there by David Platt! England have done it in the last minute of extra time! England are through to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. And Bobby Robson ecstatic. So on to the semi-finals eventually. And this is where we see the ticket-buying fiasco is just absolutely bizarre. What seems to be borne out by the FA representative is that for the World Cup semi-final, England fans are getting 2,000 tickets, but the Germans are getting 30,000. It's insane. Yeah. It's the first time I'd ever heard that fact. When you get to the ground itself, as we said, there's loads of empty seats. I just don't understand what was going on there. Yeah, the capacity was 80,000, they were saying. So... I mean, that accounts for 32,000 of the tickets. It's absolute (laughs) madness, not even half full. It's the Stade del Alpi, isn't it? And you get a great view. They call them hooli buses. All the England fans are put on buses out of town and they're like bussed in into the stadium and they get bussed out after. But you get a little view of the outside of the stadium and it's so exciting. Josh has said this before, but like when you see a stadium for the first time from the outside, it's so exciting. Especially that type of stadium because it feels like the future of football. That for me is what Italia 90 did is there are certain stadiums that were built for that tournament that look like the future of football. And it just feels like this new era. It feels futuristic, but it's now and it's goosebumps. It really is. You're so right. The future of stadiums really is a running track around the pitch. I totally agree. (laughs) (laughs) We've got to get these running tracks in. It's amazing. (laughs) All the best stadiums have them. (laughs) And then we go out and it kicks off in Turin. You see Kevin Allen leave the camcorder rolling in his car while he hides behind a tree. You get the scenes the following morning where it's like England fans are just sleeping in the street in sleeping bags. Everyone's a bit hungover and there's that kind of tearful goodbyes. One note I've got as well is a lot of England fans wearing England rugby shirts. Yeah. 
Because the first guy they speak to, again, it feels kind of how the tournament must have been going, where he was like, well, actually, this looks amazing, so I'm going to go out there. The first one they spoke to does feel like I'm not even that into football, but this all looks so excited. I've decided to come. And it was like him and his mate in the pub, and they were like, should we go? And they both just kind of came out. <laughs> it feels like the poshos are getting on board a little bit. That's what it feels like in those yeah, moments. Totally. It's like definitely hinted at that, that there's a few poshos there. Just from a dramatic point of view, it did feel like it had to kick off on that final night, else it would have been weird. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, you kind of go like... <laughs> what, if England fans had gone, nah, let's leave nah. It's a fair cop, actually. <laughs> What's quite amazing as well is to think, and this isn't in the documentary, but we won the FIFA Fair Play Award, didn't we? Yeah. When you look at this kind of what we have now with Southgate and this kind of Dear England storyline and they've got a play in the West End about it now and stuff like that. But actually, for an England team, when you look at the contrast between the attitude towards the English supporters off the pitch and the English disease and English football being in the bin, it's pretty huge that we came out of that with the Fair Play Award. I think we did a lot of good on the pitch to healing the relationship with the English game. You know what would have been fascinating? The final line of this documentary, I mean, it's a terrible final line where he goes, and now we're planning for 1994, football in America. It's a funny old game. That's his sign-off. It's awful. (laughs) awful. awful. (laughs) But after two hours, it's like, yeah, let's get this finished because it's been two hours now. But it did make me think... Imagine if England had qualified for America. Those scenes of running street battles with police in Turin and Bologna and Sardinia, imagine those on the streets of fucking Boston and New York and how that would have played out with American cops. It would have been fascinating. I just can't imagine it. In a weird way, I don't think it would have happened. I would say in like 1990, there's a big difference between Italy and Britain as a culture. But in 94, everything would be quite familiar to British fans, and I think that would make them be on better behaviour. Maybe. Or maybe they're just enjoying America too much, just walking around with I Love New York T-shirts. It's really hard to boot off when you're outside the Hershey Museum on Times Square. (laughs) (laughs) My favourite image of the documentary, because it's the most Italian thing I've ever seen in my life, is when the battle in Turin is kicking off, a policeman runs into the middle of the riot and starts waving around with his bat on whilst lighting a cigarette. <laughs> it's like there's tear gas and it's kicking off and he's like, yeah, and he lights up. In like one moment, he's like going, that's fucking cool, man. Can't go into a riot without a lit fag. <laughs> Absolutely gasping. <laughs> one final thing that I did spot at the end of the documentary, you know, when he's driving back, he says, I need to get my brother's car back to him. And he'd been doing the whole thing in Keith Allen's car. <laughs> there was a little bit of Keith there. Oh, he was in it. He was in it eventually. Do you know what as well? I mean, England fans have such a bad reputation in the 80s. I mean, all of kind of English football did. A lot of that, I thought, it was an endemic problem with violent kind of drunk people going to football. But actually, the way those fans are treated is not something you see. You do not see the fans' perspective. And especially at a tournament like this, where you're getting harried from the moment you kind of enter into Italy. And the stories that the fans are telling about, the policemen just literally put them in the cars and taking them out of town. And it really yeah. struck me, to use Oscar the Grouch from Sesame Street as an example, is he really angry because he lives in a bin? 
Or does he live in a bin because he's really angry? 55 quid tickets to that bin cost him. <laughs> £10 membership and 55 quid. Well, that's it for this week. If you want to get even more of this episode, extended and ad-free, plus all the other Quickly Kevin fan club episodes, you can sign up for the fan club at anotherslice.com forward slash Quickly Kevin. But shall we end, as we always do, with a little quiz? Yeah, why not? And I thought in the spirit of the documentary we just watched, we would play a nice little game of starting 11. You're all familiar with the rules by now, but I'll give you a game from 90s football. All you've got to do is pick a player that played in that game. If they were an unused sub, you lose a life or you're eliminated. If they didn't play at all or weren't picked, you lose a life and you're eliminated. If they were a used sub, you get a second chance to pick again. And thanks to you, Parry, I've decided to go for uh, England versus Belgium at the Italia 90 World Cup. Let's start with you, Ben. Can you name a player that started that game for either England or Belgium? Gary Lineker. Correct. Parry? I'm going to go for Mark Wright. Correct. Peter Shilton. Correct. Back to you, Ben. David Platt? Came on as a sub, so you get to pick again. Peter Beardsley? Oh, he's out, isn't he? He was an unused substitute. Oh, unused sub, eh? Yeah, that is you eliminated, I'm afraid. Parry, over to you. Shifa. Correct. He's gone Belgian early. Yeah, he's gone. (laughs) I don't know why I did that. That was in my back pocket. Real flair player, Parry. (laughs) Just wanted to use it. Paul Parker. Correct. Des Walker. Correct. Chris. If we had Gaza. Correct. Oh, I thought it was myself. <laughs> made it sound. Steve Ball. He came on as a sub, so you need to pick again. Terry Butcher. Correct. Oh, he's right back. Walker. I presume Paul Parker. Who else is in this midfield? You have to press here. Yeah. I'm going to go for a flair, a Belgian player. I don't know if he's still around then. Francois van der Elst. Frankie van der Elst, correct. Oh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he used to play for West Ham, and he's the only Belgian player I know in this era. Chris Waddle. Ah. Oh. Correct. Back to you, Chris. Stuart Pearce. Correct. Well done. Oh. <laughs> um, no. I'm out. No. I can't think of okay. So, Chris, you win. The remaining players for England were John Barnes. <gasps> and I think the trickier Steve McMahon. Wow. And then I'm not going to run through the Belgian team because I don't think anyone would have got them. Maybe Michel Prudhomme in goal. Garetz Kleisters for Savelgren, De Wolf, De Mole, De Grey, De Grazer. De Wolf. Wellmans. Michel De Wolf, it was. Do we play one up front that game? Is Lineker the only striker? I guess it depends on the formation, but yeah, it looks mm. like it. Okay, Chris, so you get to choose which song plays out of the episode. Oh, thank you so much, Parry and Clarky, for joining us this week. I will end this episode with a tune I'm not sure we've ever ended on before, Michael. World in Motion, New Order? Has to be. Oh, yes. It's amazing if we haven't, but I don't remember using it. I'm sure our listeners will be able to tell us. Tell us if we're wrong. Right, that's it for this week. We'll see you next week. This sign-off comes courtesy of... Duncan Fraser, who says, it's time we effed off Richard Goff. <laughs>
This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.